0: Animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. Except Chirag.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 28 of The Two Vegans. I'm Heetal.
0: And I'm Chirag and why are we sounding so formal today?
1: Because we have a very formal topic to talk about. Advertising. Chirag's marriage.
0: Oh. Yeah, that one is serious, you're right. Okay, let's focus.
1: Have you watched the uh, Indian matchmaking, by the way?
0: No. <laughs> No, I mean I've seen all the memes of, I've had people talk to me about the show so I kind of have a general gist of it but I haven't I haven't watched you
1: it. You have to. You have to. For all our listeners who watched Indian Matchmaking or if you haven't just go and watch
0: it. It's brilliant. I don't have to. Uh,
1: you you must. No. I no. insist. Because it's a fun show. It's cultural appropriation at its best. It's <laughs> one of those shows made by white people to bring brown people down and just focus on our negatives and it's trash TV at its brightest. So go ahead and watch it. This is not sponsored at all by Netflix.
0: (laughs) I can't, I I don't think anybody who heard that will even imagine that, uh, that it is sponsored. So I think we're okay. I think the learning that none of those couples are together currently pretty much like sealed any chance of me watching the show.
1: No, but like firstly it's obviously all made up. It's it's all staged.
0: It's staged, yeah, it is staged. When you're watching the yeah. show
1: you realize that most of it is staged. Mm. Um but also the matchmaker.
0: Seema auntie the lady
1: called Seema Seema Auntie or Seema Taparia, yeah. she is another level of epic. Like you <laughs> have to watch her.
0: Okay. She's obviously the uh, the source of many, many a meme right now, or was a couple of weeks ago. But yeah. No, it it's just funny. So the New York Times did a did a piece um where they went and interviewed all the people that had started on the show. I think it's like eight couples or something like that. Uh asking them like what their experience was like and then, you know, uh how they felt about the matches that obviously CMonty had come up with. And some of them were a little polite and they were just like, Yeah, you know, it just didn't work out for us or whatever. Or some of them were just like, Yeah, that was not a good match or like you know, the first, whatever was aired on the thing, which was like the first couple of meetings were nice. But then after that, I discovered that the guy was a <laughs> dumbass or something like that. Okay, so uh, we want to talk about some of the myths and stereotypes that are propagated through advertising, especially in our context when we go as far as, especially when you go back to the 80s and 90s when uh, fast food became really a thing in the era of McDonald's and franchising and all of that stuff. Uh, so that's kind of what we're going to talk about today.
1: And I think advertising or marketing in general, and I know this because I'm a marketing professional and I think of different ways every every day to convince my target audience. I think that plays a huge role in how we as consumers buy products um, and where we spend our money, whether it is uh, TV ads or print ads, radio ads, podcast ads, um, and any other sort of marketing, direct or indirect So um, we kind of wanted to speak about how dairy and meat uh, have become so big um, thanks to the right kind of marketing that was given to them over a period of decades. It has almost reached borderline brainwashing um, or maybe not even borderline brainwashing. It has brainwashed a lot of us over a period of time to consume these products as um, necessities
0: just before we dive into that like i think just, just contextually I mean, you mentioned you're your marketeer and stuff and obviously me doing the kind of work i do uh, have uh, delved in and out of uh, branding and that kind of thing we just recently rebranded as well and i didn't believe this maybe 2 decades ago or you know even maybe even maybe 10 years ago about how much power uh, good marketing good branding has on us as people and while traditionally creating brand value creating a brand identity um, also has to do with just sort of creating that brand loyalty right at the end of the day with your consumers or with your with the people who might consume or use or do whatever with there's no law that says that you know your branding and your advertising can only be about your principles of course right so then it just becomes uh, what can we do to drive the sale of this product uh, or or drive the conversation away from certain things we don't want to talk about Uh, and I think we have so many examples of those especially when we look at the meat and dairy industry in terms of how they have presented themselves to be doing almost a service to people, even though it's on the backs of slaughterhouses.
1: So uh, during the decades of the twenties and the thirties, milk was a very minor part of people's diets. And if you actually look at it a little deeply, uh, you will see that wherever a person lives, you usually talk about the climate and the soil uh, efficiency of that place. And naturally, uh, what the nature gives us is crops. It gives us fruits, it, give it gives us vegetables. So at that time, farmers would essentially focus on um, growing that. And it would depend on what kind of climate you're living in. And the food would be exclusively to that climate. People would only eat seasonal stuff. Um, people would only eat what they could grow. And there was no such thing as imports and exports on a massive scale at that time. Um, pre-industrialization uh, era. Uh, so what happened is, and I'm going to keep US as the benchmark over here because US is one of the countries that's the biggest consumers of meat and dairy. Um, and I'm going to try and give some references of India as well, um, because I have seen that country's obsession with dairy up close and personal, including my own obsession and my family's obsession.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so during the World War One, um. Obviously, there were a lot of soldiers that were injured. They were malnourished. They they did not have enough food. So dairy was actually sent to them. Milk was actually sent to them um, as something that was quick and filling and also uh, as nourishment, uh, quotes in quotes. And um, so what farmers of the country started doing was they started getting rid of their other crops, agricultural crops, other um, agricultural animals, And they started focusing on just keeping cows and uh, producing enough milk to look after all these soldiers. Um, And once the war got over, the demand obviously died. Uh, And when the demand died, there was an abundant surplus of milk with all these farmers. So what they started doing was they started selling the idea that milk is a healthy food. And uh, they started um, getting in touch with all these schools, federal agencies, governments, and they started putting out ads saying that um, a glass of milk a day will keep you healthy, will make you taller, uh, will give you strong bones and teeth. And if you go back on YouTube or wherever you look for ads from that time, it just basically talks about why milk is healthy. It's not about the taste. Um, or, you know, just the availability, it's mostly about health. So they tried to kind of develop ads for that just so that they could sell their surplus that they had. Um, But at that stage, the surplus was even higher. So what they decided to do was they decided to kind of get together with the government, um, and the government then started buying this milk from the farmers, um, and they started taking the burden of the costs. But over a period of time, the government realized that they can't sustain. Um, The storage was costing them a lot of money and milk being a fresh produce um, was not lasting long enough and there was a lot of waste and so on. Um, And they tried to kind of make a lot of other byproducts like butter, cheese, buttermilk, yogurt, everything. But there was still always a surplus. So eventually, the, uh, the unions c- convinced the U.S. Congress at that point that they will come up with a concept called dairy checkoff, um, wherein the farmer every month or periodically will give a small amount of money to the government uh, or rather a fee that they will pay aside for dairy advertisement. And uh, in in return, the government is going to spread this advertising and marketing across to the general public, mm. and they will approve all the campaigns that Dairy comes up with. And that's how you had the, um, the birth of Got Milk campaign and so on. Um, so in a nutshell, if you look at it, this all came from a fact that there was too much milk that was produced during a war situation. And in order to kind of sell that, they came up with all kinds of stories and propaganda and campaigns to sell it off.
0: Yeah, I think what's interesting uh, in, in the stuff you said is also, uh, and this is true, I mean, you're using the US as an example. I mean, there. if you look at other countries, I mean, it's, there's there's similar progressions that have all taken place in the last 50, 60 years, uh, where all of this has just kind of turned around. I mean, if you look at the Indian context, especially uh, you know, things like m- milk but also milk products were actually a luxury item, right? Uh, they, weren't, they weren't stuff you got very easily. Of course, partly it was quantities were, not, uh, quantities were not there and we weren't doing large-scale production. But then also if you look at um, what used to happen typically is that you would have, as you mentioned, a farmer or somebody that would be producing a very, very small quantity of milk. Like today, the, the argument that's which I don't, or one of the reasons why I don't appreciate that argument is it's being made about bees today. Uh, in a very similar way, so when you when you look at a lot of these, um, they're creating their own hives and um, and sort of doing this sort of um, very managed beekeeping. Beekeeping, that's what I want. Sorry, so very managed beekeeping, right? Um, and and when you talk to them and when you when you kind of get sense from them to like, okay, what is it that you're trying to do here? The argument they always make is like, yeah, look, we're not we're not looking to up the production of honey. But the fact is we land up having excess honey because we're maintaining the bees and we're only selling that and it's totally organic and it's totally fine. Like it's not really mass produced, like don't worry about it, right? And that was for me, like it's it reminds me of that, that era where you had these little small farms that were producing a little bit of milk uh, that if you were close enough to the farm and, you know, it was excess in in terms of how what they were consuming, let's say, you could buy it and you could use it. Um, I find the same thing, I mean, if you look back at, uh, again, kind of tracing back the last 40, 50 years, uh, you see very similar things with, with meat, right? So again, you had this thing where you had uh, people realizing that meat, be, meat could be mass produced. And at some point, I don't, I don't know when this transition to be perfect. Like, I don't know when we as human beings decided that taking control of animals and just not caring anymore uh, was an okay compromise against the amount of money we would get to make. Right? And I don't know when that, when that line was breached or, uh, or how many years that line was breached. But again, the concept is the same thing, where these things used to be luxuries. Again, they were all related to having small farms somewhere, uh, the original organic kind of situations. Uh, and suddenly it was like, well, actually, there's a huge appetite for this. And so if we associate that appetite really well with good advertising and branding and, and make it part of identity, we could convert this into a large-scale operation because then we, would, we would have demand that could be justified.
1: Exactly. Um, and going back to the Indian history, uh, we have a token dairy brand that every Indian knows, which is Amul. And uh, Amul was a company that was created by um, a gentleman called verghese Korean. And guess where verghese Korean studied? Any guesses? Any guesses? In the US? Exactly. And he studied in the US uh, in the late 40s um and um at that time, i think uh, the u s was on the spree of um working with the governments um because by then the world war II was in um was in place, and at that time similar things were happening so um <laughs> i this is pure assumption, but this absolutely makes sense in my head that he obviously saw that and he was he was asked to come back to India. And uh, at that point, the Indian farmer who already was uh, raising cattle uh, was kind of in a bit of a um, in a bit of a fix, where he wasn't getting the kind of money that he wanted for his uh, produce, obviously because there wasn't enough demand, because nobody knew the uh, nobody was brainwashed into buying uh, dairy, and like you said, it, dairy was luxury; it was very limited. So the farmer wasn't making enough money and whatever little he was selling, he was being constantly exploited by middlemen. And so uh, Verghese Kurian then came to India and started uh, these dairy farms or dairy cooperatives, as he called them, and got away with middlemen. Now it sounds like I'm probably trying to glorify him, but that's exactly what was done to him. He is known to be... uh, somebody who brought the white revolution in India and he just changed the um, uh, the image of um, the dairy farmers in India and so on. But what he essentially just did was make money for the government. Um, he uh, pumped up a dying industry or an industry which wasn't much in demand uh, by fake advertisements and uh, by marketing propaganda just to make government some money. And um, at the expense of animals, and then turned everything and t- turned a country like India, where everyone had cattle and one or two cows, where they would feed themselves first and then sell the extra to their neighbors and other villagers, turned that country into hardcore factory, far- uh, factory farming. So, um, no way does this man deserve to be glorified. And if you remember, we had um, we these campaigns of dood, dude, dude. The uh, in Hindi means uh, milk, and uh, it would constantly run on our TV channel
0: The moment you say that, like in my head, like the tune starts playing, right? Because that's that's just how exactly. much we heard it as kids. Yeah.
1: Um, and a similar thing was done for eggs. There was a campaign that said, Sunday, Monday, rose which
0: uh, by the way, which translates to whether it's Sunday or Monday, eat an, uh, eat an egg every day.
1: And they actually started and I was watching these ads during my research. And um, for example, this egg ad had a kid sitting on a dining table with his father, his grandfather and his great grandfather. I don't know if you know, if you remember this, but if you watch it, it'll automatically trigger your childhood memories. Um, So the the kid is asking his father that, hey, a friend of mine said that you're not supposed to eat eggs in summer uh, when it's hot. And the father's like, oh, I haven't heard anything like that. Why don't you ask my father? And the grandfather's like, I haven't heard anything like that. Why don't you ask my grandfather? And the grandfather is shown to be this um, really athletic man. He's basically Dara Singh. Right. And he's known to be this really athletic man who's like, who is this friend of yours who's giving you misinformation? There is no such thing. It doesn't matter whether it is hot or whether it is cold, whether it's a Sunday or whether it's a Monday, you are supposed to eat eggs because uh, that's how you will get energy to deal with this heat.
0: By, by the way, Dara Singh was used to be an Indian pro wrestler, by the way. So that's, again, one of the reasons why they, they kind of using him as a brand ambassador to showcase and not just health, but even uh, like athleticism and the fact that you would actually become really strong, muscular,
1: Exactly. And masculinity. And the worst part about this ad is not the propaganda about the egg industry, but it's basically uh, typical Indian patriarchy where there's a dining table with four men um, and the woman is in the kitchen and she only comes out at the very last bit when they're trying to sing the uh, campaign song saying Sunday hoya Monday. That's when she comes out of nowhere from the kitchen, um, which kind of is something that we see in Indian households. Women eat after men. And so this basically is just the epitome of masculinity and how you will be a man and you will be strong if you eat eggs. Um, And the ad ends with, oh, presented by or sponsored by National Egg Committee of India or something. But we don't see all of that because by now we've been so moved by this ad. And we're like, oh, brilliant, what a catchy tagline. And oh, what a catchy song. And oh, I totally get this. My mom also stands in the kitchen and... We all sit and eat food, so this relates to my household,
0: you know. Yeah, in fact, the the, the those ad campaigns, as you mentioned correctly, uh, just want to touch briefly because you mentioned the the white revolution. Um, the white revolution was this attempt, and it was a pan-country uh, thing that was uh, a government initiative that essentially ended up converting India from, uh, as you said, like it was uh, where milk was a thing that we had, almost a luxury kind of thing to become this thing, that they actually to cultivate the demand for it so that an industry could be created, right? So the, the logic given at the time was uh, to make it an avenue for, uh, uh, to make it an opportunity for farmers, right? To gain income. Because if we make... Uh, if we help the demand of, of of milk on one side and we help farmers, uh, because that's a lot of concessions were given, right, for people who wanted to get into the industry and stuff, whether you look, I'm sure there were, um, you know, things like land and all those kind of concessions that people do when you want to try to boost an industry. For example, today that's what's happening with something like electric vehicles, right, like, or or, or your renewable energy things where you are given discounts and rebates and all kind of things. Uh, when initiative, you know, when the government goes behind initiative in that way, And back in the day, that was kind of this concept to say, let's create an opportunity for uh, farmers to get a source of income because if the more cows they have, the more milk they'll produce, the more milk they'll produce, um, the more they'll sell, the more money they'll make. But of course, then a demand had to be created for it too, right, where everything then becomes the focus of, as you mentioned campaigns like the the dude campaign or the the egg campaign that was done you have these big celebrities and at the time by the way it's not as as it is today right like today literally like even a a mid-tier brand will go and get and fetch a good celebrity back in the day uh you had a very few level of celebrities and then a very few level of brands and so if a brand brought someone like that on board like that completely changed mindsets right completely so the moment you saw someone like Adara Singh, as you mentioned, you saw uh, cricketers, you saw, you know, the real superstars of the time come in and advocate for one of these things. That change that changes that used to change moods in ways that you know. Again, today with the era of social media, where you actually can then hear an alternative voice and someone can come and tell you actually what you're reading is not quite right. Uh, Again, those were not what we saw. We had one, you know, few channels, one-way kind of communication. And so, the moment somebody decided that, hey, we're going to put some money, we're going to get this ad done. That's it. That's all you saw. Like, like uh, I mean, even now you can we can hum the the theme, the tunes for a lot of these ads. Uh, that we heard in our childhood, because we just heard them all the time.
1: It, this this entire campaign of India was, um, or rather the the birth of Amul happened during the late 40s, early 50s, and that was our post-independence era, where the world knows um, that the British had pretty much looted her country and snatched away all the wealth that we had. Um, so... At that time, we had a lot of landless laborers, obviously because the land was mostly taken and snatched away. And um, and the easiest way to make money for the government, for the farmers, for the people was dairy. Um, and let's face it, dairy industry is um, basically the basis of animal cruelty. So, like you said, you know, when when you um, and I want to talk about this a little later uh, about what kind of human emotions do, does advertising target even things like Coca-Cola and Pepsi which are absolutely useless inventions in this world uh, it's all purely advertising and marketing it's bringing all these famous celebrities um, showing the world how cool it is to have a soda drink in hand a cola drink in hand um, back home in India it was always Miss World Aishwarya Rai and Shah Rukh Khan and all these people constantly advertising and you and you remember during the 90s there used to be a competition amongst all the big actors of Bollywood all the Khans basically each of them would advertise one kind of
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was product. I was literally so about Sharakhan to say that right beef. Like, so Shahrukh Khan was Pepsi and then Amir Khan was Coca-Cola Aishwarya went to Coca-Cola so um, and Salman
1: Khan did thumbs up thumbs
0: up yeah yeah and then eventually Mountain Dew and others now and, and so on so exactly yeah
1: another thing that I want to mention here is um, upselling when you go to a McDonald's or pizza hut or any of these restaurants there's always like why don't you add two more dirhams or two more pounds or two more euros and you get extra large fries or you get oh just add one more of uh, of the currency and you get a large coke even when you're watching a movie um and um buying popcorn and the, like ma'am just for three more rooms
0: you'll get oh they made it, they made it even they made it worse right so now it's like this so there's a one room difference between the different sizes but the sizing is not is so disproportionately larger right so it's like you get double double exactly. four durum more and then you get like four times for one more room, right like it makes zero sense but that's how they essentially you just find yourself being like oh okay uh i mean i started saying no to that now but like it's it's one of those things where even i would be like oh really it's only one room more for that like that ginormous size compared to this teeny tiny one. Oh, okay, cool.
1: It's not like the companies are selling you more food for lesser money, and that's profitable for them. But what they're essentially trying to do is they're trying to make sure that you come back because when you leave that place, you feel that you have achieved some sort of value for your money uh, and that you have um, received more than you should have. And that kind of in this competitive world and competitive economy gives you this satisfaction as a consumer that, oh, look, I saved my money but well, your stomach is still the same your uh, your um, your appetite is still the same uh, but now you're just eating more
0: i think this is where perhaps um, <laughs> you know where we look at this now today and we evaluate this and go back and look and we wonder what the hell was going on but it, it, there was so much this race to the top that nobody gave a shit what was happening behind right so for mcdonalds to produce a double cheeseburger at a dollar or dollar 50 or whatever they were charging for it like, what kind of compromises were they making in their supply chain to make that happen? Okay, eventually we discovered, hey, they were using things like horse meat and, you know, and like the kind of shit they were adding to their thing so that it would last for days and months and years, right? Like, so that they could, they could have an efficient uh, supply chain. Like, so the, all of this stuff took years, years, years to, to come out because everything just became about billion burgers sold, right? Like that, it was just, it was just a race to the top. Uh, anything else didn't matter.
1: Exactly, and that's sad because these brands live um, their main criteria or their main um, area of interest should be their consumers and whatever is good for their consumers, but that was that wasn't even in the priority list like give them shit to eat, let them die um, collateral and then damage. at the same time
0: consumers work collateral damage.
1: And at the same time, we're going to have an insanely ridiculous healthcare system that's going to take even more advantage of the people that we have made fat um, and just ruin everything. And that's, that's, you're right, that's how we are here now. The world is what
0: it is. Uh, there's no no doubt. I mean, uh, just yesterday, but yesterday was the day where um, we have maxed out the earth's resources for the year. Right? So we have consumed more than the Earth can regenerate as of yesterday. Everything we're doing now is actually killing the Earth from today until the end of the year. We've already exhausted its ability to regenerate as of yesterday. But it's only because of the pandemic that uh, this day has come a month later compared to last year.
1: Well, exactly. But if you look at the statistics, you'll realize how much of the Earth's resources are used for um, animal agriculture. Um, I mean, we talk about meat being luxury until a few decades ago, dairy being luxury until a few decades ago. But in the U.S., currently, eighty-five percent of the farmland uh, is used for pasture and grazing animals for agriculture and to f- uh, and to grow feed for these animals. That is insane. It's insane. Eighty-five percent, seventy-four percent of freshwater consumption is by animal agriculture industry.
0: So when we talk about like why this fight sometimes seems so uphill, uh, is, is partly because of this, right? A lot of the advertising, a lot of the stuff has reached a point where it is so, so damn normalized. Let's put this in, in context of the last few years, especially, right? Things like veganism and uh, has been on the rise. Vegetarianism has been on the rise too. We've on previous episodes talked about numbers as well. There has been an impact to the dairy industry, to some extent, the meat industry over the last few years. Uh, taking hits because of what's happening. Dairy industry in particular, by the way, because uh, uh, f- interestingly enough, the the dairy industry has been under attack not just because of vegans, but also because of increasing intolerances to dairy. Right? So a lot of people are not in it for the animals or whatever, but they're avoiding dairy and avoiding, especially dairy-related things and moving to non-dairy alternatives, especially for things like coffee and all that. So, so there's, been a, there's been a hit, right? And immediately, and it took no time at all, for you to start seeing things like free-range... Um, you know, and and all these campaigns that are coming out now where the producers of these things are not looking and re-evaluating whether they should be producing it, is the level at which they're producing it harmful, etc. But trying to justify that, hey, we're actually better than the other guy because either A, we don't inject our animals with hormones, which is, I mean, a whole conversation by itself. But then also this idea of like, You know, our animals are free range. Like, the cows that we milk, they get to walk around in the green grass. Like, I mean, as if we're doing somebody a favor. Like, just the idea of that campaign makes no sense. Like, actually boils my blood a little bit because I'm just like, I'm sorry, you're doing the animals a favor by letting them walk around in a two centimeter patch of grass? Like, what what are you you justifying here? Right? Like, whatever you're doing is inherently problematic, just leave it at that, right? Just, to, just say why well, your milk is better than everybody else. I don't care, right? Whatever process you're using, fine, if that's the advertising you want to do. But the idea of creating this marketing around our, our, our cows are grass-fed. I mean, even beef, right? Like you see a, uh, the Wagyu beef and stuff is like, hey, you know, the animals are treated really well before we kill them. And I'm like, <laughs> what? How, how, how does that justify anything? It doesn't, right? Like it's like saying like, it's, it's like saying like, you know, I, I kidnapped somebody and, and I fed them really well before I killed them. If you notice as well, by the way, a lot of the ads sometimes when they're doing these things, they're, they're generally animated.
1: Exactly. And I was going to speak about that next, that how do advertising campaigns build that relationship with the audiences? So one, as you rightly mentioned, is animations. Um, never has there been any organization or any ad that has shown the insides of a factory farm and how animals are kept. Um, how a cow is inseminated. Um, how a cow is able to produce milk throughout the year. Nobody talks about the science. Nobody talks about what the reality. It's all animation, animation. Cute little cow here, nice pink piggy there. Everything is so cute. And then that just automatically with some glitter and unicorn turns into food. Um, and the second thing that they do is if you if you've seen the packaging of cheese, you always have happy cows. Um, pictures of cows smiling there's a cow and a calf and the calf is drinking from the mother cow which means that oh we're not hurting anyone the calf is allowed to drink and then this is just excess just,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: you know the cow has come given it to us on a platter so we're just making cheese out of it um and um you have and it's it's disgusting when you actually know the truth but a lot of people don't know the truth, and so they fall for it. And we did as well when we did not know any better. When I was in Memphis, it's a it's a city um, where a lot of pork is consumed, like a lot. There are and every restaurant outside has a laughing pig, has um, has fridge magnets where two pigs are actually having sex, and they're like, oh look, we're producing more pork for you, and it was disgusting to the core. But my other colleagues or my the other friends that I was with found it hilarious. They're like, "Oh my god, I'm totally buying this because I love pork." And I'm like, "Do you not do you not see how they're dehumanizing you? They're not they're desensitizing you to pain and murder." Um, and again, you know, the colors like blue and green are often used in like oh, um, like you said, organic or um, grass fed. And just put green and everyone thinks like, oh my God, if it has green and it has a couple of leaves here and there, it means that it's natural AF and I should have it and I should give my money to this product. And if it's blue, then it gives you this calm, watery feeling about it and that it's pure. Um, and these are the tricks we use. We use when people are actually branding. These are colors do a lot to, um, and you know this, you've just recently changed the branding of the um. The media companies.
0: So we, we went through a lot of research that that explained to us why certain colors evoke certain emotions and when you want to communicate how you want to communicate the, the colors matter and so that's what that's as you know we, we had a discussion about it as well in terms of the colors we want to use and why we wanted to use them absolutely absolutely makes a difference and most people are are as you said they're desensitized to processing beyond that initial emotion right so when when you see a color that Emotion is created. You stop there. Most people tend to, to to date even now. Stop there. But
1: that and that that is the sad part that we don't know the science behind things. We don't know that a cow has to be impregnated, just like a human um, female uh, and a mammal. Uh, for nine months, she has to have the baby calf, and then when the calf comes out, the the milk is meant for the calf. Uh, which means that if a cow is producing milk throughout the year you're definitely doing something wrong you're doing something against nature same thing as with chickens chickens are not supposed to lay these many eggs as much as they do but they are constantly fertilized and they're constantly um given um
0: yeah it's like injections and stuff that they're done to to keep yeah, fertilizing the egg artificially things. Yeah, yeah
1: exactly and that's not natural and that's because we, I think industrialization somewhere is to be blamed for this. And we have no idea how things work in nature. I've now moved to the Netherlands and I have a little garden in my house. And I'm seeing every day how a plant or how um, a shrub or a, a stem is actually growing into a full-fledged rose. Um, I've never seen it. I've always grown up in cities. And it's shameful that I've never seen it. Um, And I'm constantly seeing bees, I'm seeing how they're pollinating, I'm seeing slugs and I'm seeing snails, and I'm reading more about what's their role in the ecosystem. And it's amazing, Uh, but we don't know about it. We're not taught about it. Um, We're kept away from um, the realities just so that we're not uh, a knowledgeable consumer. Uh, Because let's face it, ignorance is bliss. And if you're ignorant, then it's better for my business, because then I can feed you any lie.
0: No, and it's also it's also less it's also more comfortable for for the consumer, right? If I have to think about where this milk is actually coming from, and the just just process all that information and have to deal with those graphic visuals and stuff like that makes me uncomfortable. And so I'd, I'm very happy to believe uh, this thing that the this company is telling me through their branding, through their advertising, through their posters, through whatever that oh no 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 they're treating the animals well, or no 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 this is it's all grass fed or. Um, they're they're wandering around open and free, right? Like free reign stuff.
1: Going back to uh, other ways that advertisers target their consumers and their audiences, they um, target their need for value for money, which we've already discussed, which is upselling, supersizing. Um, There is social work, which is exactly what Amul has done. Um, constantly telling people that, oh, look, I brought um, employment in India. I did this for the farmers. And India has a very emotional relationship with its farmers because it's an agricultural country. Um, so people were like, oh, this is brilliant. You gave our farmers um, a means of income. So we are going to support you and we're going to buy your product. And essentially, that's how they made the government and basically Amul rich. Um, and not to forget how much exploitation happens of farmers within Amul, which is a topic for another day it kind of gets on um uh, people's emotions for nostalgia and um you know it's constantly about what you did as a child and what you liked as a child if you look at cadbury ads they mostly target nostalgia
0: also even like f- families and festivals and stuff like that where looks like you know this is the occasion to celebrate um i mean look at the their um i mean their slogan used to be right okay in the like it's which translates roughly to like, this is the taste of life, right? Like it's it's all about that, ringing that emotion, connect again.
1: Exactly, and you remember that ad that Cadbury India did of the lady whose boyfriend is a cricketer and she's watching the game. Um, and then he hits a six and then she goes running into the field um, and then the cop stops her. And that entire song and the ad is just pure nostalgia. Like even today, people in India eat Cadbury like crazy. It has, It is one of the biggest markets for Cadbury.
0: You know, uh, for me, like if you look at a company like Cadbury and stuff, what tells me a lot about where they stand on these issues, like, look, I mean, there was a time 40, 50 years ago. Uh, If you were someone who was trying to start a business, was trying to start something, like you'd be almost a fool to not get into one of these industries, right? Because the demand was just so high and there was so much backing from governments and uh, other organizations and lobbies and stuff like that, right? But we're in 2020 now, right? Um, There is a tremendous awareness um, online and otherwise of people who understand and who are trying to take very, very strong stands against a lot of these things, and yet today, Cadbury does not come out and say, or another of any of the other ones that we've mentioned today anyway, come out and say, you know what? Uh, in recognition of that, look, we're, we're a good company. We, we, we've always wanted to support everything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Today, we're going, to, we're going to announce, for example, that in five years, we're going to be entirely vegan. Either a new brand, or we're going to recreate dairy milk for the non-dairy era, let's say, right? Or for people that don't want to have dairy for the vegans or whatever, right? And that would kind of give you the sign to say, look, whatever they have done so far and they're not going to close that business easily, obviously, but at least they're going to try and make a shift for the better in some direction, right? Like you had companies, like when we talked about the other stuff, like you look at doves and, um, others, right, that took, have taken at least supposed stands today to say, like, in five years, we're going to eliminate animal cruelty of your body shops and all of these stuff. Uh, you know, the, the chocolate industry the, the, and, and companies like this that, that thrive The sort of the subsidiaries to, not subsidiaries, but the subsequent ones to, to dairy, right? Not wait until it becomes 70% of the people and now my money's being affected, so that's why I have to get into this business. But actually take a positive stand at a time like this. You can do it through your branding too, by the way. Like a Cadbury can create a demand for non-dairy chocolate. They can. They have. They have it in their power to do it, right? To say, "Hey, this is just as good as dairy milk." Go, go, give it a try. I
1: partially agree because for any company to manufacture something, there has to be a demand. So, if you look at KFC and Burger King and Pizza Hut and Papa John's, they're all doing it introducing for Introducing vegan pizzas. Um, so there's a constant controversy amongst vegans that do we want to support these firms because they're not canceling or they're not replacing it with vegan options. They're adding it just so that they can also target the vegan audience. Um, But a KFC or a Cadbury or anyone else who has a vegan option along with a cruelty option um, will realize probably in the next decade based on a demand saying that, okay, it doesn't make sense for me as a production line to um, produce more meat burgers because my vegan burgers are selling much more So I'm slowly going to reduce the production of that and keep that as a niche product and have vegan burgers as my main product. But so I agree with you that companies need to be a little more ethical and more responsible about their um, uh, produce. But companies such as Cadbury and Animal who have essentially been, um, either they need to completely shut down because not only animals, they exploit a lot of labor, a lot of human labor as well. Um, so either they need to completely get out of the scene, and if there is some sort of a heart change and ethics that comes in, then it has to be coupled by demand to make sense. Mm. And that's where people need to change their habits as well.
0: No, well, I'm with you. I'm not. I'm not saying that. I, and I'm, in fact, I'm essentially agreeing that Cadbury two years from now will do it anyway because the demand will be there, right? What I'm saying is, i what I would have liked to see is a company like Cadbury come out and say, you know what? how about we help you, we'll help create that industry. We'll start now. I mean, I feel the same, by the way, of electric cars, right? Uh, if, if it wasn't for Tesla, I don't know if uh, a lot of these companies would even look at getting an electric car. Whereas they had the means to create both the car and the demand, Right, But it is just, it's one of those things where no, you know, they're not going to sabotage themselves essentially uh, by introducing a product that would essentially affect one of the other lines. And that's the, same, that's the same story if you look at something like dairy milk, where if they create a non-dairy thing, they know that their, their own dairy milk sales will be affected. They're not forward-thinking enough to know that in five years, give or take, your dairy milk sales are going to go anyway. You might as well get started in doing something now. Be your own competitor rather than have a, you know, a pseudo-Cadbury come out with line that becomes the next big thing
1: yeah but they don't have that foresight i mean they they don't have the ethics
0: actually the ethics that i want i said it's the morality that i want i don't want the foresight i just i would just rather them come on and be like look we can we're we're listening
1: yeah but if you if you're just talking about a firm that is in the business for profitability you also have to think beyond ethics and a company like cadbury is or unilever has too much ego They're, they're so powerful that they are blinded by that power and they cannot see that in the next decade or so they're going to be screwed big time. So instead of changing anything now, they're like, oh, we'll see. There's always going to be a consumer that will want my product. Um, and that's what they've done over a period of time. They have, they have flooded the market with their products. There are only main two or three major companies that have flooded the market with their products, but slowly it is changing.
0: And this goes back to kind of the, the general theme of what we're talking about today, right? P- companies like these not only know that, not only believe, for example, that they're invincible, but funny enough, actually dri- drive their own demand, right? So they know that they are going to create the campaigns, the advertising and the marketing that's going to keep their demand afloat because that's what they do, which is why I completely agree with you. At the end of the day, it's us and the consumers that have to take our stands. To create and put pressure on these brands to make a difference because they're not going to do it otherwise.
1: And one last—it's—it's it's never ending, isn't it? I thought you said the um, previous one was the one. One last. No, you just digressed big time. Yeah,
0: a little bit, but it's okay.
1: Yeah, but like the last point was that um, companies and brands kind of play on the need for trusted sources. Uh, and I was doing my research, and it just um, it just I just saw it today, and I just saw it very differently. Do you remember in your school textbooks, you had food groups and you had five basic food groups and there was fruit, vegetables, uh, meat and eggs, milk and cheese and um, uh, either bread and butter or it was legumes and grains. And just how smartly they put it into syllabus and other countries just kept blindly following the same syllabus and kept selling the same bullshit to people. And you actually started believing that meat and eggs and cheese and milk are essential foods. Uh, Having ads run by um, government authorities, National Committee of Egg Industry, um, the United States Dairy Industry, you know, people start looking at it as um, sources that they can trust and believe in because it kind of gives them a little bit of, oh, but there is science over here. I'm sure these people know what they're talking about. Um, and then bring celebrities whose words really matter a lot to the common public.
0: Uh, I'm reminded of the show I used to watch called The Good Wife, which was a, a legal drama. Um but there's a, there's a point where, um, I guess it's three or four seasons in, where basically this firm expands to actually include lobbying services. I'm just reminded of that because it's, it's really funny, right? They have this whole arc where they actually have the, the corn industry butting heads with the cheese industry and then kind of lobbying the government to create a food group around them. And so you kind of, you look at that and it's just really interesting because you realize that a lot of times it's not exactly scientific, it's monetary, right? It's, it's pressure. So it literally gets to a point where they're like the, you know, the, the, the corn industry is so upset that they're like, if you don't make us a separate food group and you separate us from the, from the grains, then, you know, we're gonna do this punitively to you kind of thing like this, is retaliate in this way to you and we're gonna run a smear campaign against dairy and all this stuff. And it's just really funny because it's just like, it's just power play. Right. It's not let's do what's best for uh, our citizens and our our people and the people that we're advising. It's about uh, what is the best political situation in which we can solve everybody and make everybody happy on the table that we're sitting at. Uh, Some of it was rooted in science way, way back in the day. But then these food groups got expanded based on just what what were the prevailing needs of the time rather than what was best.
1: Imagine if spinach or blackberries did this campaign. With governments. <laughs> so
0: spinach is only lucrative when you when you pump it into a green juice and call it green juice, antioxidants.
1: Well, I think it's just Popeye that pretty much brought it at another level, but no one else.
0: But did. that's it. But isn't that isn't that amazing that like uh it is. Uh, you we had a cartoon that ex exhumed the, the benefits of eating spinach. As uh, so we're making someone super powerful. And that that was never made mainstream. That never became a thing. Nobody wanted to yeah. be a Popeye. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess that's what we have. Well, that's what we're talking about this week. Um, uh, as always, guys, you can find us uh, in your favorite podcast player. You can look for the two vegans. You can find us on Instagram, the two vegans. Uh, and we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know what you think. We'd love to know when maybe your eyes were open to some of the inconsistencies and misrepresentations that we, you received through ads or maybe some of the ads that you know from your childhood that um, had that kind of impact on you like it did for us um, I think it's a conversation we should keep going and, and unfortunately the conclusion is that we, all of us as consumers have to change our behavior for brands and companies to take effect but hey if you happen to be a company that's listening to this maybe it's time you made a change You know,
1: Cadbury <coughs>
0: <laughs> well Ita as always lovely catching up um, I guess the pandemic has made us used to doing uh, internet calls so it doesn't feel that I bad I need a either, raise you know. why do you need a raise
1: I need a raise from you to run this podcast
0: and why did you wait until the end of this show to talk to me about this after you after I've put in the, my effort in now I have to negotiate with you after the fact so you know that I'm already like handicapped here
1: yeah why is this a surprise
0: can we take this offline? Can we finish the recording? No, we no, need to. This on, we need this
1: on record that my producer is not paying me for such awesome content I bring on the table.
0: Now, aren't you the, the creative director and the person in charge of everything anyway?
1: Yes, pay me. <laughs> You're the owner of the company. What's <laughs> the point?
0: <laughs> well, the advantage I have actually is I can turn off the recording here.